Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is a special edition of the New Statesman podcast, co-hosted with Talking Politics, a politics podcast from the University of Cambridge. We are recording this as the second half of a discussion. If you want to hear the first half, you need to go to iTunes or Google Talking Politics. And I'm joined by David Runciman and Helen Thompson. Helen, I'm going to start because we wanted to talk a bit about the far right, who I think have had a pretty good year in 2016. We'll see how 2017 pans out for them. In the previous part of our discussion, you said as an aside to something else that, you know, Donald Trump is not really a conservative candidate in any way that we would talk about him. So how useful is it to talk about his win as a conservative victory? I don't think it is a conservative victory. I think the interesting thing about Trump in this respect is is he, he plays both to the left and to the right of where the Republicans have fought presidential elections since at least George Bush in 2000 and probably going back further than that. So if you go back to the post-mortem that Republicans had after Mitt Romney lost in 2012, essentially what the Republican establishment said is, look, we need to ditch this stuff on illegal immigration. We need to find a way to win Hispanic votes. And then we do that and we can hold on to our conservative positions on a whole range of things, whether it be on kind of on the Tea Party fiscal agenda or whether it be on the kind of issues that motivate evangelicals. Trump kind of ripped both sides of that up, that he wasn't really interested in the social conservative agenda. He was able in the primaries to win Republican voters in Massachusetts and in Georgia, win Protestant evangelicals, who a group who we said at the beginning got no chance of winning. He also then completely ditched this position on not attacking illegal immigration and moved to a position much further to the right on that than any position that any Republican had previously thought it was sane to occupy, even though Romney himself had obviously been some way out on that issue compared to the positions that Bush and McCain had taken in the previous three Republican presidential elections. And then at the same time, having kind of turned the Republican playbook upside down, Trump then, I think, by the last part of the campaign, wasn't even running as a Republican Party candidate at all. I mean, he pretty much put the Republican Party in the swamp with the Democratic Party and the lobbyists and everyone else. So you have this kind of strange situation where you can tell the story of what's happened in America since Obama's election of a crisis of the Democratic Party, leaving aside Obama's two presidential victories, the Democrats simply losing seats both at federal level and at state level. And so it looks like the logical culmination of that is the Republicans win back the presidency. 
But at the same time, they've done that by somebody who was actually running against the Republican Party. And that makes trying to understand what Trump's about, actually think, incredibly difficult. I mean, there was an enormous kind of Durman strang among American journalists about whether or not they could call him a far-right candidate, right? You know, I think I would describe him as being on the far-right and having that odd blend of, of left and right, and the far-right often does. But the thing that I've been struck by is now that all of the votes have been counted and we can sort of start to understand, quantify what happened a, a bit more, is that if we'd known in 2012 that a generic Republican would run against Hillary Clinton, we would have gone, oh, well, the Republicans will win. Not, yeah, actually, Hillary Clinton was, was at the peak of her popularity having been Secretary of State then, but just because of the difficulties of winning after eight years, exactly what you were saying about what had happened to the Democrats below the presidential level. And in terms of the time to change model and the generic expectation of what that Republican would do, Trump underperformed significantly what you'd expect. So, in an odd way, while it is the triumph of the far right in terms of holding the offices of power, of potentially being able to dismantle large chunks of the American welfare state such as it is, in some ways isn't this a conservative victory held back by the albatross of the far right? But See, I don't think that Trump has any particular interest though in dismantling the American welfare state. I think that if you look at the way that he campaigned, that's one of the ways in which he used race is, is to kind of like try to solidify, if you like, a position supporting social security in particular and take the Republicans away from that cutting agenda that they had had about that in, in previous elections, but kind of give off the message that this is about protecting the interests of white people in relation to social security. Strange thing, on the one hand, he's doubling down on what have been long-standing Republican tactics, at least since Nixon, about appealing to racial grievances and racial anxieties amongst white voters. And at the same time, taking the Republicans away from an agenda which is threatening in terms of saying, look, the state is going to stop doing certain kinds of things from you. Now, you can, I can see, argue that that's kind of what fascists have long done, mixed right and left agenda. But I do think that Trump is doing it in a kind of quite distinctive American way and particularly tapping into a set of issues around the relationship between the federal government and states that have long complicated American politics and made it different from the way in which these issues play out in Europe. David, I want to bring you in on this because the other candidate who's up for election next year that I think probably mostly fits into that mould of a hard line on immigration but also left of her presumed rival on welfare and work is Marine Le Pen mm. of the Front National in France. Every time I'm on the Sunday politics and uh, you mentioned Marine Le Pen, Andrew Neil goes, she's Benite, you know, her economic policies are Benite, um, which I think might be overstating <laughs> it slightly, yeah. Um, but she certainly, compared with Francois Fillon, who is the uh, Les Républicains candidate, who most people expect she will face in the final round, She's certainly offering a much more populist economic message than him, combined with a very hardline immigration message. She is. I mean, I have no problem describing Marine Le Pen as both far right and populist. I mean, with Trump, I do think it's hard to know how to compare him. I mean, partly this is just biography, right? There's no question Trump has used aspects of far right politics to get himself elected. But he was a Democrat until relatively recently. I mean, he's, he's not, I mean, there's not a sort of personal history here where you see someone He's not an ideologue, is he? I he's mean, not an ideologue. He, he doesn't have a consistent worldview. And he's not like Mussolini. He's not, he was a syndicalist and then he became a fascist, you know, moving from the far left. So, you know, he's a pragmatic manipulator and he's grabbed what's to hand. Marine Le Pen is born and bred into that tradition. With both of them, were she to win, there would be the question of what happens in government when they collide with a set of choices. In a sense, I almost have more fears. Well, no, I have fears about both of them. 
but fears about Trump in that when the going gets tough, he's going to reach for whatever is available in order to shore up his position. And so the politics could get even nastier in that respect. I mean, because he's a pragmatist, there are no limits to this. But Marine Le Pen is an ideologue. I don't think she's a Benite, but there's not just a worldview, but there's a long-standing set of beliefs and traditions. There's no tradition behind Trumpism, I don't think. And that does make a difference. And to, to me, far right suggests a kind of view of the world that is long held and deeply held. And I don't think Trump has that. So that to me is the difference. It doesn't make him better, it just makes him different. I think that makes it very hard to be a political journalist. I don't know how you feel about this in the age of Trumpism, because the kind of chutzpah, I guess, is the kind of thing that is just totally, you know, like you say, that kind of complete lack of any consistency is is wildly disorienting. You know, someone who spends the whole time on the campaign trail talking about how terrible it is that Hillary Clinton gave speeches at Goldman Sachs promptly appoints people from Goldman Sachs into his cabinet, right? Yeah. There's just there's just a sort of kind of almost admirable kind of like, I'll get away with this, I'll do it. But that's a very scary thing. Yeah, and we do have models. I mean, Berlusconi, not Mussolini, these are the models, or, or Modi or Erdogan. Marine Le Pen is far right, but is far right the best way to describe that? Because I think actually it's about power and it's about the desire to hold power and to exploit power and that could be lots of different things and it could go lots of different ways i mean i think it's hard it's really hard to know unprecedentedly hard to know what a trump presidency is going to be like as it plays out i think it's not just hard to be a political journalist hard to be anyone who studies politics and have any confidence that you can sort of see through a sequence Maybe the same is true with Marine Le Pen, but I think there's more to go on there. So, Stephen, this is the question. I think that if anything we should have learned from 2016, it's don't over-extrapolate from a small number of data points. Do you think there's a danger? I felt when we were waiting for the Austrian presidential election that everybody was just waiting for it to be Norbert Hofer because that would kind of be the summit of the year, right? That was obviously the trajectory everyone was on. And that's the same lens that is being applied to Marine Le Pen and also alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany, that this is obviously naturally, that, you know, this, this is where the arc of history is going. Obviously, there have been a lot of events in 2016 which fit that pattern. But you, you saw it in Italy where Renzi, yes, was forced into a referendum, didn't need to turn it into a vote on his own personal popularity and was predictably defeated because he made it a, a vote on his government and the left has never got more than 49% of the vote ever in Italy. So of course they were not going to win a referendum. With Austria, voters don't like being asked to vote twice where there are thousands of examples of that. The fact he didn't win the first time and the Freedom Party had forced a rerun did not favour them all that well. In France, and you know, my hostage to fortune here, is that I think the institution of the Republican Front of voting against the extremes, which obviously used to be something people did against the Communist Party in the second round, means that Marine Le Pen is going uphill. Whereas Trump was going downhill, right? The tradition of racial resentment, as, as Helen says, has, has been part of Republican politics at least since the 70s. The reason why I think that the far-right label works is even when he was a Democrat, he was still having to be sued by the Department of Justice to admit black tenants into his buildings, right? There is a commonality in Trump's thinking, regardless of which party he has at a given time. But I think just as we used to talk about but socialism with African was... characteristics or whatever in the 70s, I think we might now be able to speak of fascism with American capabilities and of the far right with French characteristics, of a far right with British characteristics. Because, yeah, the thing about, say, Farage, obviously he's not very successful, but he's a stereotype of a certain type of Britishness. Le Pen's fascism could only really exist within the wider tradition of French thought, ditto Trump in America. I mean, this comes back to David's point about Trump. You know, when he was not letting black tenants into buildings, do you think that was, I mean, obviously it was racist, but do you think it was simply economic? You know, I don't, 
if you see what I mean, do you think that his his racial politics are driven essentially by economics that he thought, well, actually, this will make it much harder for me to rent these to white tenants. And he doesn't care enough about the principle of equality to to make a stand on that. No, I think I think at the point when you appoint Steve Bannon to be one of your advisors and you appoint Jeff Sessions, a man who couldn't get confirmed by the Senate in 86, a situation when the Senate used to regularly filibuster the idea of having a bank holiday for Martin Luther King Day, right? This is a, a type of of racially freighted politics. And I think after a while, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. David? The other question about the far right is what their attitude is to democracy. And we talked about this a bit on part one of this discussion. the, The question with Trump and maybe with Marine Le Pen, what their attitude is to elections, getting re-elected, how when it goes wrong for Trump, he stands. I mean, I don't think many people believe that he will try to avoid the challenge of re-election. And there is a difference between American democracy and everywhere else. I mean, every other democracy in the world has had moments where it has cancelled elections or fiddled around with them. I mean, Italy is a classic case, either allowing technocrats in or just at least bending the rules of the game. And the Americans have never cancelled any election. There will be midterms, there will be another presidential election. Is Trump really the kind of candidate who is going to start ratcheting up the I don't accept the, the voters' views as expressed at the ballot box or not? If he does, I have no problem describing him as on the far right. Well, he's already doing that because he's well, already starting to tweet about having one in a huge landslide. Yeah, no, and but, that's, go, but you're yeah. ignoring, yeah. You're ignoring everything. Yeah, that's true. I'm not yeah. allowed to. So I'm you've not broken your New Year's resolution yeah. already. But yeah, it's true. And it, I think it is one of the questions here. I mean, assuming in the midterms he gets a rebuke from the voters, he's not good at taking rebukes from anyone. Does that go beyond midnight tweeting, 3am tweeting, and become a serious challenge? Because again, that would be something entirely new. If, if people start talking about cancelling elections in America, we're in new territory. My big fear is is a terror attack, not merely because it, it is always a horrible thing, but also that it what it legitimises. And looking back at the way that Bush used 9-11 in order to pursue a, a foreign policy agenda that you know he was already kind of interested in anyway... I don't think that Trump is a president who will let a crisis go to waste in terms of things that he wants to do that might not be very democratic. But then there is the question about foreign policy. Where does that fit into a kind of far right? Yeah, well, I was going to say, just before we get on to foreign policy, though, I think that the, the, the weakness of the American Republic in the face of a, of a Trump presidency is going to be on the federal state relations, because that is the longstanding crisis point, if you like, of American political history. It's what caused the civil war back in you know 1860 after an election where 11 of the states didn't want to accept the election results. So it's not that there isn't a history in the United States of political conflict being generated by a federal government that's committed to doing something and state governments and the Democrats are still in power in a number of significant states. And I'd say the most significant for these issues is going to be California, where the state government and the federal government are going to be in you know, severe conflict with each other about whose laws have primacy. And that is, I think, where we should fear all kinds of potential political disruption in the United States, because that's where we've seen in American political history that the trouble happens. What about, um, what about China? What about this thesis that there's this strange realignment happening in geopolitics now where you've elected a US presidential candidate who is much more sympathetic to Russia and that kind of now weirdly America and Russia are going to, if not gang up together, but be much more permissive about each other's democratic overreaches. And where does that leave China in that relationship? Well, I think that here we've got to think be sort of beyond the fact that it's Trump in the presidency. I mean, I think that one of the things that happened under the last two presidents, particularly under Obama, but not exclusively, is that China and Russia have grown closer together. And actually that American foreign policy has given them some pretty strong incentives to do that. And that kind of overturns the whole way in which America essentially ran foreign policy in this respect since Nixon and Kissinger in the 1970s, where you say you keep China and Russia apart, you play their differences 
faces off against each other. You try to have a essentially detente, accommodating relationship with each. Obviously, the Cold War did return in the 1980s. So I think that you would predict, regardless of who is in the White House, in some sense, that you would have a reaction from an American president against a situation in which Russia and China have got relatively well aligned with each other over the last decade or so. And given that China is the stronger power in the long term than Russia, you would expect that an American president who thought about realpolitik in this way would try to strengthen the Russian alliance and play confrontation with China, which I think is, say, what Kissinger himself is kind of saying he thinks American foreign policy should be without it becoming too confrontational with China. So I wouldn't think of it so much in terms of, like, the form of government question and Trump's autocratic style in relationship to Putin as to, well, what has been going on in geopolitics and what would you expect from a realist perspective, at least, about where the alliances are going to go now? So no trade war, no nuclear war. I mean, no war of any kind. Is that a good, hopeful, optimistic prediction? I mean, I think that what Trump was probably likely to do there is, is to try to use the threat of a trade war to try to push China down about various security issues in the South China Sea, to try to separate out, say, a stick and carrot approach to that problem. And at the same time, to try to diminish the incentives for Russia to cooperate with China about the Silk Road and various energy questions. And obviously, there's potential for that to get out of control. And you can't just say, okay, I want China to react on this. And actually, they end up reacting on something else. And then you've got a more conflicting situation than Trump or his advisors would have wanted. But I think that that's the kind of game that's going to be played as a kind of trade off issues against each other and use some for confrontation and use some to try to be the threat. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, let's move to our second big topic that we're going to talk about, which is really about what motivates voters in this kind of new landscape. We talked a bit before about whether economics or identity are more important. Stephen, we're in this weird situation now where people identify more with their vote in the referendum than they do with any of the main political parties. At some point, is something going to break? You know, What are the interesting kind of divides in British politics that are not reflected in our parliamentary system? Well, I think obviously the, the big one at the moment and for several elections to come is Remain Leave, which according to some polling we've had done for the NS, which will be in next month, next January's magazine. <laughs> that, was very, that sounded very, um, uh, very professional. Sometime though. next year. Some, At some point in the Just fullness keep of time, the magazine well, yeah, until it turns yeah, who knows when really? it could be. Yeah. People identify more strongly with their referendum vote than their party political vote. Now, the thing about first past the post, of course, is it deters a new entrance and rewards incumbents. But one of the things which has helped with this is that the two parties have tended to absorb new movements. The Labour Party obviously absorbed the new left, which started out as Benism, and then a lot of the new left people became uh, new Labour ministers. The difficulty with the referendum is the Labour Party doesn't seem at all interested in absorbing the votes of people who identified very strongly with Remain and seems to be going for this illusory group of people who want the same things that Theresa May is saying she will achieve in in her Brexit deal 
but trust Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell more than they trust Theresa May and Philip Hammond. That feels like a strategy to get no voters whatsoever. The interesting is, obviously, the Liberal Democrats are campaigning as the explicit party of Remain, so perhaps they'll get a benefit, but... To refer back to the first half of this chat, and yeah, the first half in, in this episode, as it were, not in the other episode, which you should obviously listen to as well. Seeing as Trump was able to not quite achieve what a generic Republican was able to, but was still able to win as the candidate for change. The one thing I think that Trump should teach us is not that Corbyn can win on a populist wave, because I think that right populism is not the same as left-wing populism, and I don't think that the solution to it is to just go, oh, well, we love the NHS and maybe flags as well. But it does show that if people are desperate for change and if they they want to change and they aren't perhaps that keen on the offered change, they may still take it anyway. And so I think it does show that this idea that that Labour can't win in spite of Corbyn definitely shouldn't be taken seriously. David, do you think it's helpful to talk about left versus right as a big axis and or split in British politics? It's quite hard to find any other language to do it, but it definitely doesn't capture it. I mean, the, the ones that are really interesting for me, um, I think you've got a special issue coming out on the new divides mm-hmm. in British politics. And there are many, left, right, is maybe one, but there's a generational divide and there's an educational divide. Now, the most startling polling figure I saw from last year was among over 65s, Theresa May outpolls Jeremy Corbyn by 60, not 16, but 60% mm. in favourability terms. And as we know, over 65s vote. But is that an identity thing? I don't feel that old people, let's call them old people, old people think of it as an identity politics issue. And then there's the educational one in both the United States and here with Brexit and Trump could be argued the single biggest factor in trying to separate people out was the question, did they or did they not have a university or college degree? And there's a sort of 30-point gap on that one. And then that connects, say, in the Brexit case, it connects over 65-year-old homeowners in Maidenhead who didn't go to university just because no one went to university 50 years ago, 2% of the population or something, and pissed off young people in the north of England. That's not really identity politics either, but also it's not straightforward left-right, that's for sure. And it's not easy just to do it as an economic question, because these people are in very, very different economic circumstances. I know David Willits has a line on this, that Brexit is the alliance, I think he calls it, between the insulated and the isolated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's people, so the over 65 homeowner in Maidenhead can vote Brexit because, frankly, they'll be all right anyway. And then the people who are pissed off in the north of England sort of feel like they maybe have nothing to lose. But it's really hard to sort of hook that around identity politics questions and really hard to hook it around left-right and economic questions. So it's really hard. I think it is an identity politics question, right? I mean, so as, as simple as do you, do you watch the news on BBC or ITV? Or do you watch Channel 4 News, in which case you're really left-wing, right? In our block of flats growing up, we were the only household where we got our news on Channel 4. And I just remember this being something that, that the other kids thought was odd about my mum, was she got her news on, on Channel 4. And looking back, although she, you know, she was a single-parent family living in a council, she was the only parent in the block with a degree, right? Yeah. Questions of graduate and non-graduates become, yeah. and I think are inextricably linked to identitarian concerns, not least because graduates tend to have a common language yeah, obviously you don't have a Midlands accent, I don't have a, a Cockney accent. You go to university and you develop both a common way of speaking and a series of touchstones that are connected to the university experience. And in terms of the old versus young, my instinct, and obviously there is not polling available, or if a pollster wants to do some polling of the elderly for free, I would happily laugh. But my instinct is, is if you just polled 
over 65s with degrees, that gap between Corbyn and May would close quite drastically. Yeah, I do think it is a, it is a class thing in a kind of cultural sense as well, not in a purely economic sense. Progressive and conservative is maybe a better way to capture it. It's do you feel that things are getting better and that for you things are going to get better? Or do you Mm. feel that you need to hang on to what you've got and that's it? You know, you're fighting over a diminishing kind of share of stuff. The language that Matthew Goodwin and Rob Ford used about UKIP voters, you know, the left behind, I think it's fascinating. It points to another big split we've seen both in Brexit vote and in Trump's vote, which is kind of cities versus suburbs and rural areas. London is full of people who have come to London from somewhere else. You know, they have made a big break in their lives in order to usually find a job. And that's a fundamental aspect of your identity that I think actually you don't experience it in identity terms, but you think of yourself as a certain kind of person. And I, and I, I would imagine that people who have never left their hometown feel very differently about Europe and about the places of the world than people who have, have made that big kind of break in their lives. Yeah, and, and that's, I do agree with Stephen. I mean, it, deep down, of course, I think it's right. This, these are identity questions. But as you said, Helen, people don't tend to think of it in identity terms. And, you know, they're not thinking, oh, I'm voting as a graduate or whatever. But clearly, there are these deep sort of identity issues that cut across it. And I do also agree with you. It's about thinking about the future. Sometimes it's thought that Brexit voters are nostalgic. I think if they're nostalgic, they're nostalgic for a past in which they believed in the future, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, for a time where they could see 30 years ahead. And it's quite hard these days to see 30 years ahead and have any idea what the world would be like. But there is clearly a divide between people for whom that is a, a really frightening prospect. And that does actually cut across some of these economic and left-right questions and people who can sort of see their way into the future. But I think there was another way of looking at it as well, which is kind of against the sort of the narrative around identity politics in several respects. The first is that we still have substantial minorities in each of these groups who are taking the opposite position. So if you look at London, for instance, you know, more than 40% of Londoners voted for Brexit. And that is still a substantial minority. It's simply that because it's a 20-point margin, it looks like it isn't. One of the things that is striking, I think, about older voters who voted for Brexit, or at least some of them, is as they did in a quite strong sense have faith in the future of the capacity of a British government to manage the future. And that there's a certain kind of pessimistic fatalism in the other sense and says, actually, no, we have to have the EU as the political site of authority and power that can manage our future because the British state has failed. There's a kind of act of optimism in the Brexit position if you look at it from the perspective of someone who values democracy and an act of pessimistic fatalism about the failures of the nation state, if you look at it from people who are very pro-remain. So I think that in trying to explain it all by the way in which people feel about who that they think they are, without tying that to what's actually politically at stake, what the substantive issues are, I think we can go astray. But I wonder if those people in London who voted leave were more likely to be from the outer boroughs who are living in the same house where they grew up and they work very close to home. Whereas the inner boroughs are probably more migrants, either from the rest of the UK or from abroad. I don't, I don't know if there's that. Even in, you know, kind of, you know, Tower Hamlets, where I grew up, we actually slightly overperformed our leave share based on sort of the demographic controls, because there was one thing to vote leave did very well is they had a very strong message about visas and India and Pakistan and the unfair treatment of Poles. So there was a specific kind of story in that demographic. But that was still 40, 40% of people in Tower Hamlets voted to leave. Something like 35% voted to leave in the People's Republic of Hackney. So, yeah, these are exactly as Helen says, these are substantial minorities. I think there is an element that in some cases they are 
I really don't want to use the word indigenous, but I can't think of a better one. Indigenous white population, which feels under threat. But not all either. My, I remember, and the weird thing is my partner knows nothing about football because I've completely failed to indoctrinate her. But on referendum day, we were both very pessimistic about it. But we were going, oh, maybe we've got it wrong. And there's someone who's got a Chelsea flag up and always has a Chelsea flag up. And they had a Remain post. And so, I mean, like, if Chelsea fans are voting to stay in, right, then that must be a good sign. And I just thought, wow, you don't know anything about football, but you know that Chelsea are a bit... Bit Continental. Oh, What are Arsenal? Are Arsenal? Arsenal are like definitely the most Remain club. Ian Leslie wrote a piece for us about what is defined politics in 2016. He said, you know, it comes down to the idea of status. And I think that is an interesting way of looking at it. It's one of the reasons I think that men's rights activists, you know, these very angry guys on the internet were such vocal Trump supporters because a lot of this stuff has been about men's jobs being lost and men's status about head of the household has been lost. I think that has been one of the big profound social changes of the last 30, 40 years. You know, there are more women than ever who earn more than their male partner. And actually, there is a sort of sense in, in politics that you just want to know who you're next in the pecking order, who's who's next down for you, which applies in, in America in pretty stark racial terms about white voters supporting welfare measures less if they think they will benefit African-Americans. There is a sort of sense of it's not just about your absolute economic performance, but where you kind of stand in a, in a hierarchy. No question 2016 is a very event-filled year played out against the backdrop of generational demographic changes to do with gender, to do with age as well. I mean, when Stephen said earlier, if you polled people over 65, those with a university degree, those not. Trouble is, you, you just can't find people over 65 with a university degree because they didn't. And now nearly 50%. Is it one in 10 in that generation, I think? I think it's, I mean, so if you go back to, so I was really struck reading the, whatever that election survey report is of the 1964 election, where they had a little discussion about whether education was an issue. And they said, well, we can't talk about university degrees because we surveyed a thousand people and nine of them went to university. That's in 64. But that's, of course, talking about people from the 20s. But we're talking, I think, less than 5%. And now we're getting close to 50. This is a huge shift. And it's sort of playing out across our politics. The role of men and men as heads of households. This is a 30, 40-year story. And then we got the 30, 40-year story about stagnant wages and all of that. And 2016 looks like a kind of fulcrum of some of these things. And the first, presumably, a whole sequence. And the optimist would say, in if you think, Brexit was a mistake. I mean, this is The Economist's view on this. Just wait 20 years and then all these university graduates, it will be the majority of the population. And then they'll but vote. For the same reason, though, it could be the case that actually education is much less significant than we think and that age is much more significant than we think. We don't know. And that, and that, but that's my point is, is because yeah. of the fact of the proportion of going to university has changed so much what actually is determined. Or it's if it it's is young the, people versus old people, not... Well, it could be. I'm not saying it, whether it's young people versus old people or educated versus less educated people. But what I'm saying is I don't think the data, given the change that's taken place, allows us to make a clear judgment I, about that. I may be completely wrong, but there are more graduates across the age distribution in the United States. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. People, yeah, people used to go to college back in the day and they didn't hear. Because, I mean, I think my instinct, obviously they are both consensus-shattering events and happened in 2016. My my instinct is I'm quite leery of the Brexit Trump read across, partly because I just don't think there is a British equivalent to hostility towards African-Americans, actually other than hostility towards Europe. That is our, our African-American, that is our original sin, yeah. I mean, and you can trace it way, way, way back, you know, even kind of arguably to some of the arguments about Elizabeth I and Cromwell and, you know, it, it's sort of baked in. 
not least because it feels that there wasn't as much of a graduate divide in the US. There was a, I think it was what, 51% of white graduates voted for for Hillary. That was one of the other ways in the polls were wrong. They significantly overestimated the willingness of Republican graduates to not vote for for Donald J. Trump. One of the things I do think is really interesting is actually how little we've got to grips with what an ageing population means for politics. It's one of those things like the NHS or kind of the care crisis. It's how, you know, we just, in economic terms, we're not dealing with it, but actually in demographic and voter driving terms. Paul Johnson, the IFS, did an analysis programme for the BBC recently, which was kind of, should we break our promises to pensioners? And actually that has been the one constant throughout the last 10 years of politics has been, that, as you say, the insulated that pensioners must absolutely be protected. And sometimes that's really unfair. You know, if you as soon as you turn pension age, you don't have to pay the bedroom tax, for example example anymore and that's you know there's no obvious change in your life circumstances that makes the bedroom tax affordable when you're working age and not you know mysteriously a day later you should be exempted from it the triple lock which you know the commons uh, work and pensions select committee sort of started saying well actually maybe it should just be pegged to average earnings rise it shouldn't be this kind of iron thing and john mcdonald immediately came out and went what a terrible idea you know there is a, a kind of auction for the votes of old people and actually i think we've almost run out of stuff to give them and we think you know, Brexit puts us at the front line, but relative to Italy or Spain or Greece, really aging societies where... Yeah, you, massive youth unemployment at the other Massive end. youth unemployment, but the reason massive youth unemployment has not brought those societies down is there aren't any young people. So yeah, it's 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds, but that's a very small portion of the population. You know, 15% of 18 to 24-year-olds in Egypt or whatever being out of work, that's a recipe for social collapse. But Spain and Greece and Italy... And apparently, I'm told that, you know, the, the pension system is actually just a proxy for welfare because your pensions are being funneled through to these out-of-work people who are continuing to live at home. That's a completely different kind of social setup than anything democracies have been used to in the past. And yeah, we're at the beginning of this, and it cuts across questions of immigration and everything else. We don't know how that's going to play out, but it's uh, it's unlikely to be straightforward. And in the European case, it could be very ugly. It is. I think there's another issue to this as well, though, is is that if you look at it in monetary terms rather than fiscal terms, it really does look very different. And I think we're going to see this play out in Germany because in monetary terms, pensioners have been the ones with most savings, have been the ones who've absolutely lost. The generation that has benefited from monetary policy over the last 10 years or so since the crash is Generation X, people in their 40s and 50s because they are the ones who carry the most debt and they are the ones who've basically been having their um, mortgages paid for them by this extraordinarily accommodative monetary policy. What we're going to see in Germany, in alternative for Deutschland's performance, though it's not yet clear how well it will do, will be a pension of backlash against the economic policies of the last few years because there the issue that drove alternative for Deutschland to begin with is low interest rates on savings or zero interest rates on savings to be. So actually you're going to have pensioners who are going to drive a populist backlash, which is not what we've been used to seeing. As I say, I think there are reasons to think that alternative for Deutschland will not be anywhere near as successful as some of these other populist rebellions. But the people who will vote for them will be those who think they've been screwed over by monetary policy since 2008. Well, there's not been a lot of sunlit uplands as yet in British politics and the later this year, but do you both have a nomination for something good that happened? David? Okay. <laughs> this is going to sound very flippant. Trying to think of a vote that went well, where the kind of mainstream centrist candidate was not overturned by an outsider. And I was pleased when Andy Murray won Sports Personality of the Year, because in my household, we revere him above all other human beings. And he was the mainstream centrist candidate. And as people said, oh, there's a vote which wasn't an upset. Sort of more seriously. I was quite serious about that. To go back to 
sort of fake news question. We can overstate this. My feeling about this year is it's been roller coaster. It's been exciting. It's been frightening. It's been all sorts of things. There has been a fantastic amount of excellent writing and analysis about politics. And it's easy to find thanks to, you know, the internet is, people say technology, it's not neutral, but it's not good or bad. It's good and bad. And the good comes with the bad. And the good is that I have no idea what it was like to live through the 1930s or the 1890s, but I assume it was frustrating because if you wanted an alternative point of view to the one that was being forced down your throat, it was really hard to find it. And though, of course, we're all in our echo chambers and we tend to gravitate towards the things that will cheer us up and all that, you can find really interesting, excellent writing from every point of view every day. And I've actually found this year uplifting, partly because when something happens, you can always find intelligent people trying to help you make sense of it. It's hard to make sense of it, but there is really good analysis out there. And there's more of it than ever before. We shouldn't think there's more fake news than ever before. There's also more really good political analysis than ever before. We shouldn't be too bashful about saying that. I mean, yeah, I've subscribed to a lot more news organisations because I just think actually the only way you can do that kind of journalism is to pay for it. And that is why people should also subscribe to the New Statesman. Um, (laughs) Helen? I think that there's been some... I had to say, to say some good things, but some things that are important, let's call it that, in the actual political turbulence of the year itself. I think that you know, in politics that you know, the exercise of power is necessary and the exercise of power is also dangerous. And the political classes that become too accustomed to exercise power over fairly substantial periods of time do pose threats to the people who power is used against, to the people who are supposedly represented in democratic politics. And when the citizens from time to time chuck out the ruling class, I think that that's important. It may be scary and it may produce turbulence and it may have short to medium term deleterious consequences. But if it never happens, if that the political class can take power and the exercise of power for granted, then that would be a pretty terrifying political world. Well, thank you very much for that optimistic end um, on behalf of me and Stephen and Helen David from Talking Politics. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.